Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us uh, soft hearts and listening ears, that we would hear the voice of your Son this morning. And we pray, Lord Jesus, would you speak to us, each of us, exactly how we need to be taught by you this morning. And would you help us, would you teach us to trust our Father more and to put his kingdom first in our lives. Amen. Amen. Uh, For those of you who have got to know me a little better during my three years at MRC, you've probably noticed that I find it quite easy to worry and to be anxious. Maybe less than I used to be, even three years ago when I started here, by God's grace, but by nature I am more prone to worry about stuff not least about money and how my future needs will be met. So this passage and its its parallel in Matthew chapter 6 have been increasingly important in my own life during my 16 or so years as a Christian. And it feels appropriate somehow that this is the text for my final sermon at MRC as my three years draw to a close. Maybe you can see how this passage speaks to your tendencies, if you're the worrying type. But maybe you're much more relaxed by nature. Maybe it takes a lot to get you stressed about your finances, about the cost of living, about how you're going to afford your basic needs. If that's you, then Jesus' words in verse 34 at the end of this passage may be very relevant as we begin. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, whatever you treasure most in your life is the thing that your heart is most attached to and clinging on to. So that is where your greatest loyalty will lie. Maybe that's the thing you worship. And you might think you find it easy to trust God to provide for your needs, you might feel like you seek God's kingdom in lots of ways, and I really hope that's true. But consider for a moment what you value most in life. If, as we said last week, when we were looking at verses 13 to 21, the general direction of travel in your life is towards gathering bigger and better or more possessions or experiences for yourself on this earth, it may be the case that your greatest treasure is still on earth and your heart is not yet fully committed to God's kingdom. And so this passage is as much for you as for those who find it easy to worry. With that said, let's dig in. Jesus begins uh, in our section for today, verse 22, with a big therefore. So we know that what he's about to say closely follows on from verses 13 to 21. And he's just warned us about the folly of storing up possessions for ourselves in this life instead of being rich towards God. Possessions cannot secure a long life or happiness, either now or in eternity. That was the main point in the previous passage. But Jesus knows that our tendency to cling to worldly possessions is often fueled by worry about the future. 
So he gives us five reasons to trust God with our basic needs and not to worry. And then, then he tells us more about what being rich towards God actually looks like. In particular, he tells us about something better to store up in exchange for earthly possessions. So let's start by unpacking the reasons not to worry about material needs. And then we will go on to the alternative in verses 31 to 34, which is seeking God's kingdom. So firstly, I'm going to give you three of the reasons not to worry. We've had two of them already in the all-age slot. I'm not going to repeat myself because of time. Reason number one in verse 23. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Or to put it another way, there is more to life than food and more to life than clothes. Now, why does Jesus pick on food and clothes in particular? I think that's because they represent our most basic needs. And for many of us, especially if we're feeling the squeeze financially, they are probably two of the things we find ourselves most worried about. But there is more to life than food. We haven't randomly appeared on this earth as a a collection of selfish genes who have nothing better to do than stay alive and reproduce at all costs. That is a lie. God placed us here as his representatives. Uniquely of all creatures, he has made us a little like him and able to know and to relate to him. And so he's given us the job of representing him on earth as his image bearers by ruling creation, filling it, caring for it under him. If you like, we are his vice regents or perhaps a little like prime ministers as Rishi Sunak is in theory to King Charles, except that unlike God, King Charles doesn't have any real power. So... (laughs) We are here to enact God's will on earth, basically, to further his creative work. That is our purpose. Our lives are meant for much more than just stockpiling food until we die. Squirrels do that. Are we going to reduce ourselves to the status of squirrels when God has given us far more noble purposes? As Jesus reminds the devil when he's tempted in the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If we want to experience life to the full, we don't just need food. We need to feast on God's words, which shows us our true worth and purpose. Similarly, there is more to our bodies than clothes. Yes, we need to stay warm, and it is true that creating beautiful clothes is part of how we image God, kind of mirroring his creative work. But that kind of beauty is not an end in itself. It points beyond itself. It points to the surpassing beauty of God's own character, of holy love and justice and mercy and life-giving generosity. So 
isn't it far more important to clothe ourselves with virtues like that? That's actually what Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then a little later, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. So there is more to the body than clothes. Our bodies have the noble task of reflecting God's own beautiful character here on earth. And because we have been made to image God, how much more does that reinforce Jesus' message in verse 24? And verse 28, if we have the honor and dignity of being God's vice regents, how much more valuable are we than birds and flowers? And how much more will he clothe and feed us? And that being true, how much more can we focus our lives on something bigger and better than just meeting our basic needs? That's reason one. Reason two, in verses 25 to 26, worry is a waste of time and energy. Worry is a waste of time and energy. How much of our worrying actually improves our circumstances? I reckon it's probably less than 10%. Of course, it's helpful to plan for future needs sometimes, and the Proverbs encourage that. But there is a difference between constructive planning and simply letting the same niggling doubts run round and round our minds unchecked like some kind of crazed hamster in its exercise wheel. And there is also a difference between taking basic steps to meet our future needs, like having a pension, and obsessively trying to cover every possible future eventuality and thing that could go wrong in your life by having, I don't know, more and more and more savings or insurances for everything you can think of. That's not faith. That's not prudence. That is actually idolatry. Because that is us trying to be God and control the future. So if anything, allowing ourselves to keep worrying instead of taking these fears to God makes our lives poorer, strips us of our dignity. To give an example, many of my dietary requirements, which some of you have had the misfortune of dealing with when you've very kindly cooked meals for me, uh, are pr probably in large part a result of stress in my previous job as a tax advisor. Stress that I allow to eat me up instead of trusting God. So for a variety of reasons, I, I struggled to keep up with my performance targets. And I was constantly worrying during the last couple of years of, of my work in tax about whether I would keep my job. Now, for some reason, the lessons of this passage just didn't sink in until afterwards. I don't know why. It didn't occur to me that I would be safe if I lost my job. 
it didn't occur to me that if I had done my best to honor God and things didn't work out well, fine, he would provide something else. And maybe this wasn't the best job for me to be in anyway. As it was, my fears were unfounded because my managers were always happy with the work I did and never said anything about a performance review. So all my worry was a waste of time. And now I can't eat croissants and pies and ice cream and things like that as a result. So as Jesus says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Don't let the hamster wheel keep spinning away. Take the worry to God as often as it comes back. And it will gradually diminish, even if that takes months or years. So, worry is a waste of time and energy. Reason three, in verse 30. You're not pagans, are you? In verse 30, Jesus compares his Jewish disciples with the, with the Gentile nations around them. These nations were pagan. They worshipped lots of gods that they'd made up. But none of those gods were transcendent. None of them were the uncreated God of Israel, Yahweh, who made the heavens and the earth and who is utterly sovereign over them. So the Gentiles had to run about like headless chickens, worrying about where their next meal would come from or how they get enough warm clothes for the winter, because their gods could do precisely nothing to help them. They were empty lies at best, or the creation of demons at worst. But for disciples of Jesus, he tells them that the God who made the universe is your father, in verse 30. Your father. Not like the more or less flawed fathers that you or I have, or that I am. Some of our fathers weren't even around to care for us. But this father is so present in the lives of his people that he knows what they need before they even ask him. All of our fathers, however loving, had limits beyond which our neediness or our stupidity or our disobedience just became too much for them and they lost it with us. But this father loves his children so much that he sent his only son to earth to die for our sins. And before you question that love, don't forget that Jesus came willingly. The father didn't have to force him. The son loves us just as much as the father does. So this God has the sovereign power and the loving care to be the best father of all. And if you've trusted Jesus this morning for the forgiveness of your sins, you're not a pagan, are you? No, you are a child of this loving heavenly father. You are precious to him. So why would you or I worry like a pagan? 
Why would we worry about how we'll pay for next week's food shop? Or how we'll pay the rent next month? We're not alone in the world. That is a demonic lie. And when the devil does unsettle us by trying to make us think that God doesn't really care, or that we are too insignificant, or we've failed too often for him to look after us, or that he's too busy doing something more important, we need to respond how Jesus responded in the wilderness. We need to fight back with God's words. And verses 29 to 30 are as good as any. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows you need them. Preach it to yourself. You are not a pagan. Unless, of course, you are. And you've not started to follow Jesus yet as your Lord and Savior. In which case, please don't believe the lie of folk religion in our culture that we are all somehow children of God. Jesus nowhere affirms that in Scripture. We may all be made in God's image, but just like our first parents, we have been disinherited, we have been kicked out of the family. Because all humanity has rebelled against God. We've tried to push him off the throne and take this world for ourselves. Each day, by nature, we say no to God and we say yes to self. And so it is only through the blood of Jesus that we can be forgiven and brought back into God's family as his beloved children. There is no other way. So if you're not trusting Jesus this morning, please don't believe the lie that you are a child of God. And please notice that these promises about God's care and provision are not directed at you. You'll see in verse 22 that Jesus starts talking to his disciples in this passage, not the crowd who he was talking to previously. But these promises could be for you if you will come to Jesus for forgiveness. And you were made for better than spending your life running about like a headless chicken, worrying about what you'll eat and wear. So please come to Jesus. Have your humanity restored by him in the care of a loving, heavenly father. the rest of us. If we don't need to worry about God's kingdom, sorry, if we don't need to worry about our basic needs, then what should we focus our energy and resources on? What should we do instead of worrying? That's what we come to in verse 31, our second point. Seek God's kingdom. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well, Jesus says. That is, if we focus on God's interests, he will take care of our basic interests. And it works on two levels. Because God's kingdom is a now and a not yet kingdom. It's now, 
because it has been advancing on earth ever since Jesus came for the first time. Ever since he started undoing the works of the devil, freeing people from his kingdom, as we saw a few weeks ago. Through Jesus, God's reign has been breaking into the earth for 2,000 years. And the more we submit our lives to Jesus as king, the more that God's reign is present in our lives. And the more it will be seen through us and the more it will touch other people. So God's kingdom is a now kingdom, but it is also a not yet kingdom because the world and our bodies remain fallen. They remain infected by sin and cursed and broken. So many in the world remain fiercely resistant to Jesus' rule. And much of this evil will not be undone until Jesus comes a second time. Only then will his undisputed reign be established over every part of this world. So God's kingdom is also a not yet kingdom. And that means that seeking God's kingdom has both a a present and a future component to it. And Jesus highlights one component in particular that I'm going to focus on for this morning. One that is clearly dear to God's heart throughout the Bible, which is care for the poor. Verse 33, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Why? Well, because God is concerned for the vulnerable and the needy and the overlooked among his image bearers. They have a a natural dignity as his image bearers. He is concerned about them. And in defiance of worldly pride and greed, he is determined that the little people, the marginalized people, the oppressed people of this world will be especially favored and honored in his kingdom. He loves them and he favors them in order to shame those who think they are more important and more deserving because none of us deserve God's love. We can read more about that in Jesus' blessings and woes back in Luke 6, if you're not convinced about that concern for the poor. But for now, we see that God's kingdom in the present must include care for the poor. And that is part of how we seek his kingdom now. So instead of storing up possessions for ourselves, which cannot secure a long life and happiness, instead of worrying about our future security, which we don't need to because our Heavenly Father will take care of our needs, instead, we can give generously from our income and even sell possessions in order to help the poor. That's how it worked in the early church in Acts chapter 2 and 4 and 5. People sold land and houses to meet the needs of poor brothers and sisters as and when those needs were identified. Now, I don't know about you, but the times that I've actually sold something like this have been pretty rare. That's partly because my heart is, I think, often too attached to my possessions. So I... I need to keep wrestling with the call to repent of idolatry that we talked about in last week's passage and 
sermon. It's partly because I'm not so wealthy that I have houses and land to sell, like some of the people in Acts do. In fact, I tend to assume that I don't have many valuable possessions at all, at least not ones that I don't use regularly. So, probably if I went around my house tonight, and I would probably be robbed. And I also tend to sell, tend not to sell stuff, because in a world as interconnected as ours, with the internet and 24-7 news, bringing the whole world to our doorstep, there are just a bewildering number of needs, a bewildering number of needs that we are presented with. And I don't know about you, but I have no idea where to start. If you are as confused as I am when it comes to what, if any, possession should I sell and when and what should I give the money to, Scripture does give us some helpful priorities. Paul exhorts us in Galatians 6 verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So if we know or meet a non-Christian in obvious need, in the street or in our family or in our community, it is good and right to help them. They are on our doorstep like the beaten up man in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it is good to help them. But otherwise, our first priority should be the family of believers, especially if our income is very limited. We have an example of doing this kind of thing in our own church, the Compassion Fund, which is there to support anyone in the family who is faced with financial needs that can't be met elsewhere. That is a, a good outworking of this passage when we put money into the Compassion Fund. But we might also give up possessions for each other, like one or two people who recently donated their bikes to some of our Iranian brothers so that they could get around town and get to church. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a time might well come where it's right for us to sell possessions or cash in investments to support a brother or sister who has lost their job because they refused to deny Christ in their workplace. That could be a good outworking of what Jesus teaches here. Practical things, particularly in our church family, as and when these needs present themselves. Now, there's a whole lot more that we could say on helping the poor in the wider church as well. And I'd love to say more, but I'm conscious that there's no junior church today, and the longer this sermon gets, the harder it gets for some of the parents. So what I am going to do is I'm going to send round um, on the WhatsApp group, probably not this afternoon, but tomorrow, and by email to those who I know aren't on the WhatsApp group, just a few more thoughts on how we can do this, and particularly in relation to church planting and revitalization among the poor. Now, that's something that MRC has been committed to in the past, which is great. I'd hate for us to lose that commitment. 
and it is one of the most pressing needs in the church in this country, which is about 80% middle class, never mind in the rest of the world. So I will circulate some thoughts on that later. But for now, maybe the most important thing is that you, like me, just need to pray and say, Father, help me to be willing to sell possessions if you call on me to. And help me, Father, to know when it is time. And help me to know what to sell and who to give to for the sake of your kingdom. I don't think he's going to ignore a prayer like that. He might not answer it immediately. There might not be an immediate need he wants you to give to. But he is not going to ignore a prayer like that. So care for the poor is part of how we seek God's kingdom in the present. But how can we be sure that the sacrifice is worth it? That's where I want to finish. How can we be sure? Well, Jesus gives us the most glorious assurance in verses 32 to 33. When we give away income or possessions for the sake of the poor, we are not just investing in God's kingdom now. We are investing in the kingdom in its not yet sense too, in heaven and in the new creation when Jesus returns. And that's because, unbelievably, God promises to reward sacrifices which flow out of love for him and love for our poor neighbors. God's grace is stupendous, isn't it? Not only does he save us entirely by his undeserved kindness, but then he promises to reward the very efforts that his own spirit has empowered in us, simply because we kept in step with the spirit. There is no earthly sense of proportion or merit here. God just keeps on giving because he is unbelievably generous. And so when you sell possessions, Jesus says, you provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Now, I don't know exactly what that reward will look like. Revelation speaks of crowns. Hebrews 11 speaks of a better inheritance. I expect that Jesus doesn't attempt to describe it to us in detail, partly because our minds are unable to comprehend anything better than this present world, with the way it's been tarnished by the pain and suffering and the disappointment of sin and the curse. This is all we know. How can we imagine anything better? To borrow an analogy from C.S. Lewis, we are like the child who has only ever lived in a ghetto, and spends their days playing in the mud. We can't imagine what a holiday like by the seaside would be like, because we've never seen the sea. And in a similar way, we can't imagine how glorious heaven and the new creation will be, because this world just doesn't compare. But this world at best does give us a fleeting glimpse 
And that is something to cling to when we are struggling to let go. The things that we love most about this world are echoes of heaven, if we can say that. Glimmers on the horizon. So we can let go of them, knowing that this isn't it. There is something better coming. We can, so to speak, cash in our earthly possessions and invest the money in the royal bank of heaven. And when we do so, we can be sure that we are investing in something far more worthwhile. We are exchanging fragile and fleeting and fading earthly treasure for unbreakable, unfailing, unfading heavenly treasure. And our investment is utterly secure. We don't need to doubt God's willingness to give it to us. As Jesus says in verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Our heavenly father doesn't give us a place in his kingdom begrudgingly. He's not like the gods of some other major world religions who might possibly let you into heaven, but it all depends on how he's feeling on the day. No, our Heavenly Father is well pleased to give you a place in his kingdom. We may not be much in the world's eyes. We may not be much in our own eyes. We may see very clearly how utterly we fail to live up to Jesus' love and holiness at times. But once again, the generosity of our Heavenly Father overflows like Niagara Falls. He is so, so happy to give us an inheritance in his kingdom. And he is so, so happy to make that inheritance richer still as we take him at his word, trust him with our needs, and sell possessions for his sake, investing in something better. So we can quit storing up things now. We can quit worrying about tomorrow. And we can seek first his kingdom with confidence even to the extent of selling beloved possessions. To quote the missionary Jim Elliot, who willingly sacrificed his life to try and take the gospel to a South American tribe in 1956, he or she is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us this morning, whether for the first time or the millionth time, to trust you that little bit more, to see with clearer sight the beauty, the security, the joy of investing in your forever kingdom. 
Please give us confidence to do so, knowing just how much you love us and how willingly you give to us in your abounding generosity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.